Hello, Brew Theology people. Welcome back to another show. And before we dive into today's topic, American Buddha, I want to give a shout out to some of the local breweries in the Mile High City. Why Mile High City? Well, because the Brew Theology community is rooted in the Denver Brew Theology community, where it all began, all of our eclectic interfaith and non-faith people from different backgrounds, where we get together every Thursday night at a local brewery and we brew theology together. One of those breweries that we love to go back to on a consistent basis is Wits Inn Brewing Company. And you're going to hear a little bit later in the episode the movie Birdman through the eyes of a Buddhist. So we were able to talk about Birdman at Whitson Brewing Company after watching the movie Birdman. So thank you, Scott, over there at Whitson Brewing Company, a great owner, an excellent manager. Next is Grandma's House Brewery. We're drinking Grandma's House beer right now on this show. So those guys are in Platte Park. If you're ever in Platte Park, I call it the greatest neighborhood in the U.S. of A. That's my neighborhood. Go check out Matt over there at Grandma's house. Do some stitching. Maybe do some bingo. And they've got a great room in the back where they host some of our events back there. So thank you so much, Grandma's house, for the beer and the hospitality as always. Last but not least, the Brewery Black Project. Google Black Project beer. If you're not into beer, then you probably don't know about Black Project. But if you are into beer, then you're like, whoa, Ryan just said Black Project. That's right. There are two bottles coming out. This Saturday, March 18th, the Jump Seat Brew, which is a dry hopped wild ale, along with the Ejector, which is a double dry hopped wild ale. These beers are delicious. Freaking amazing. So if you are in Denver this coming Saturday, March 18th at noon, you're going to get a little bit of a special treat right there, two wild ales. But make sure you don't get there at noon because there's going to be a line wrapped around the building. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, James, for giving us some of that beer in advance. Love you guys. Peace. Hi, I'm Janelle, and this is the Brew Theology Podcast, and tonight we'll be talking about American Buddha. And uh, to help us along with our conversation, Grandmother's House in Denver, Grandma's House, actually, uh, has provided our beer. They've uh, given us a Gringazzo, which is a Austrian lager, is a Vienna lager. Mm. And they also provided for us the Five on Rye, which is a rye IPA at 6.2%. And then the final one we have that some of us that were at beer camp and got a little IPA'd out. Uh, we're really excited about the Boxing Gloves, which is a red wine barrel-aged imperial stout at 11%. So if things get a little giggly on one side of the room, you know why. We're really glad to have you here, and tonight we're going to talk about Buddha and the American impact on the development of Buddhism, and I hope you enjoy it. Tonight, joining me are a couple of my friends, and so we'll start with introductions. Uh, My name is Janelle, and I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene. We moved to Colorado about five years ago, and since then I would call myself a progressive Christian, Um, and that about sums it up. I don't like Voldemort. How's that? My name's Dan Rosado. I was raised as a Pentecostal Christian. Um, wasn't until college that I started exploring my faith and different expressions of, of Christianity. And that's when I became a Calvinist briefly, um, explored uh, Orthodox Christianity, and now still consider myself a Christian, um, influenced by process philosophy and as of late Buddhism, for probably a year and a half or two. Yay! So, mainly Zen. 
Um, I'm Kyle. Uh, I grew up in North Florida uh, in a conservative evangelical setting. Um, kind of moved away from that over the years and have slowly um, kind of been pulled back into the Christian faith. Uh, I'm currently at Iliff School of Theology um, studying theology as it relates to animal rights. Um, so studying the ways in which our theological views affect the way we view the non-human world. Um, and I enjoy going to Brew Theology every week. Uh, my name is Piper. I also grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, like Janelle. Um, I was a pastor's kid. I went to Nazarene University. Um, and now I live here in Denver, and I go to Iliff School of Theology, getting my uh, Master's of Divinity, and I hope to do um, ministry or uh, chaplaincy in the United Methodist Church. Awesome. I'm Liz, and... Uh my parents sent me to Sunday school all as a uh, all throughout my childhood, and then by the time I was a teenager, I was a pretty um, devout, um, independent um, Christian. I would go to church by myself, and I would go. We lived on a military base, so we would go to Prote- I'd go to Protestant services, and um, I'd have Baptist pastors and Foursquare pastors and Lutheran pastors, and then all my friends were Catholic at the Catholic youth group, and so I was just really happy being a Christian, and then uh, became a an atheist in my 20s, and uh, in my 30s discovered I was more of a secular humanist, and actually became a, um, a practicing Buddhist. Buddhism had always kind of been in the background, but became a practicing Buddhist probably a year or two years ago, something like that. I'm Ryan. I grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical in Texas, and about 18 years ago, I dropped the Baptist, still stayed within the evangelical tradition, and gleaned uh, throughout those years from the Anabaptist and the Reformation, the United Methodists, uh, learned a lot from John Wesley, the Pentecostals, and um, not, uh, not too much of the crazy crazies, but a little bit more in the middle, you know, the rational Pentecostals, and then more of uh, the Judeo rabbinical ways of Jesus. And so I'm uh, an evolving Anabaptist method, Jucostal follower of Jesus. And the last four years, and this is kind of how I met Dan, uh, I've studied some, a little bit of process thought and liberation theology, thanks to these lovely people on the other side of the couch for teaching me a lot about that. You're welcome. Yes. So tonight's topic is American Buddhism, and I think it's, it's fun and interesting to talk about not only Buddhism, but also American Buddhism per se, because actually, as with all religions that have come to the United States, Buddhism is different in the United States than it is anywhere else in the world. Um, And I think that actually my big premise is that Buddhism is a core cultural concept in the United States. People think this is a Christian nation. I think that that's true. And I also think that this is actually a Buddhist nation. And so I'm going to try to point out some examples about how that, that's true. Um, I see it more and more the more I practice Buddhism. Um, so what is Buddhism? Um, so the, the long and the short of it is there was a prince 2,500 years ago living in North India who... Um, lived an extremely sheltered life in a palace. He, had, he never saw anybody suffer for any reason. Everyone was young and beautiful, and all of his needs were taken care of. One day, he goes outside of the palace walls, and he sees someone sick, someone old, and finally, someone die. And if you can imagine never having seen anything that resembled suffering in your whole life, and then to have seen this, it was a huge blow to him. He decided to renounce his life as a prince and decided to try to find how to humans uh, eliminate suffering from their lives. And 
first he wandered around and he talked to all of the yogis and the gurus in the sort of Hindu tradition, because this was in India. And it actually, he discovered that they didn't have the answer he was looking for. They were ascetics. They kind of went too far. They starved themselves. He nearly starved himself to death and didn't find the, answering, the answer to why humans suffer and how to get rid of suffering in life. Um, so, you know, the, long, the story goes that he, he sat under a tree and he meditated. And he basically meditated perfectly until all of a sudden he had this massive awakening, what you would call a light enlightenment. Um, he was really good at this kind of stuff anyways. And then he sat there and he became essentially completely awake, completely clear minded and completely connected to his experience. And then by doing that, he, he realized, um, that all beings are connected. He had this moment where he realized he was integrally connected to every living thing that had ever existed, time and space, all the boundaries broke down, et cetera, et cetera. And he, you know, he had this sort of transcendent moment. Now, he lived for another a great long while. He died until he w- when he was 80, and he, I think he was in his 30s when he had the, the awakening. Um, and he preached um, a series of, of doctrines that are pretty simple, like all religious doctrines, and of course over time have um, lots and lots of spiritual implications have been founded based on the basic principles. But the basic idea is that we all suffer. It's not because we've done something wrong. It's just because we're alive and things change and we all get old and we all get sick and we all die. And there's pain associated with all of those things um, that we all live in worlds that are mostly created inside of our own heads. So things change in the outside world, but we, uh, the way we think, the way we feel makes up most of our experience about how we experience the world and how we experience ourselves. Um, when there is a discrepancy between what's going on in our ever-changing world and our ever-changing bodies and our ever-changing selves, but our brains can't comprehend it because we are wrapped up in our own thoughts and our own concepts, that is what the Buddha says creates suffering. We all feel pain. Whether or not we suffer has to do with how much we can accept and deal with the things that are changing all the time in us and around us. And that Heath said that if you practice spiritual practice and you realize the interconnection between all things and you meditate and you learn to accept change in a, in a wholehearted way that you can't transcend death. You can't transcend pain, but you certainly can suffer a lot less. And by doing so you make room for more ethical and compassionate action out in the world. Okay. So Buddhism, boom, that's what it is. And there's, there's, um, a ton of denominations. There's thousands of scriptures in Buddhism. It's a big old religion. Um, so America. What does it have to do with America? Well, um, you know, it's really interesting when, when a religion comes to America, people bring it in their original forms, it gets forgotten, and then the people in subsequent generations want to recreate it to be more meaningful. Or in the case of Buddhism, what happened is you get these teachers. The teachers themselves found an opportunity to take their own lineage of Buddhism. And as I say, the lineages are many, the history is complex. And these teachers said, well, I'm in America, I'm in a new place, I need to make the message relevant to my students, so I'm going to borrow a little from this tradition, and a little from that tradition, and a little from this tradition, even people that were raised in a very traditional setting back in Asia. So you get teachers who are synthesizing different styles of Buddhism, and then you get their students, who are American, who are trying to take the lessons that their teachers provided them, and again, make it accessible to an American audience. Um, that's how a, lot of, how a lot of how Buddhism has spread in the United States. Of course, I don't want to also forget that um, as Asian 
communities came to the United States as immigrants, they also founded their own Buddhist lineages and communities in order to um, create a cultural center and a legitimate place of worship where people could come together, um, Japanese Americans, Laotian Americans, Vietnamese Americans, and they could have a place where that um, preserved their culture and their faith and provided a gathering spot, which was especially important in the late 1800s when um, it wasn't acceptable for, you know, white Americans didn't really accept new Asian immigrants and their children. Um, there was a lot of racism. So it kind of provided a buffer um, against the hostility that they found in mainstream America. So you get the quote-unquote ethnic Buddhists, and then you get the quote-unquote import Buddhists, which is more the teachers coming over and um, disseminating, synthesizing, creating a new style of Buddhism. And I would say that in the past... 30, 40 years, something like that, um, Buddhism has spread and influenced. All these um, American students of Asian teachers have written books um, that are very mainstream and well-known, and people pick them up and glean the wisdom out of them without necessarily calling themselves Buddhists. Um, and I think that with the, the growing influence of things like Zen, all of a sudden Zen is now a cultural lexicon. Now, you know, how many times have any of us here said, well, I'm going to make my living room more zen? You know, that's very zen of you to say, meaning it's very calm and peaceful. Um, you know, or I get on Facebook all the time and, the, you know, every single time there's a, there's a meme from the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is kindness, you know, and people really resonating with that. And people really like the Dalai Lama in America. Or, um, you know, this idea of, okay, if you're feeling stressed, take a deep breath, you know, focus on the moment, let it go. I would say all of these things are really common in the United States, how we talk about things, how we think about the world. Those are all Buddhist concepts. <laughs> Whether or not they're, um, they're pure Buddhism or they're watered-down Buddhism. The other thing, too, is that mindfulness-based mindfulness practices are now a huge, well-known, well-regarded, evidence-based part of psychotherapy and stress reduction techniques. So you get an element coming out of Buddhism translated into a workable form in a scientific endeavor. So that's my posit, um, that we have, are becoming a more and more Buddhist nation without calling ourselves Buddhist. There's a very strong link between uh, therapy, uh, psychology, and, and Buddhism, or at least certain aspects of Buddhism. Like all my friends that are therapists, or, or uh, psychologists all know something about Buddhism, and it's fascinating to me. And in fact, the, there's an intro to Zen book that I picked up from D.T. Suzuki, and the foreword is by Carl Jung. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's and awesome. D.T. Suzuki was like hugely influential. He was back in the 30s, one of the very first Asian teachers who came over. Yep. Yeah. Not to be confused with Sh Shinryu Suzuki, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, different guys, but... Yes. Yes. So I think it would be fun to get into the questions as well. And I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts um, about the two movies that I put into the notes, which I think are integrally Buddhist movies. One is Groundhog's Day and one is Birdman. But maybe we can um, dissect those together since folks have, who have seen that, who have seen those movies? Here, here. Yeah. I haven't Ooh. seen Birdman, but I've seen uh, Groundhog Day for yeah. sure. Same. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen either one, so oh, okay. I might well, not good. be much help in this part. No, that's okay. I've seen Groundhog Day. We need to go see Birdman together. So actually, when I was a accompanist at a middle school, Groundhog Day was our movie day movie. And I think that he was trying to kind of instill in them 
some of the very kind of things you pointed out as being very Buddhist of going through the same day until you learn the lesson and actually start living and being a better person. Um, and the kids got, you know, they would pick on it and they would get really bored having to watch it again. But it was, I think it was a really interesting choice for that age group and just to help them think about like, how does, how do my actions affect me and affect other people? And then how do I grow and change in a way that's going to make that better? Yeah. So I'd like to talk about suffering a bit and this might be personal for some and people can share if they want to share, but if, if suffering is the one um, major theme, it's a starting point. It's the, it's the end point. You're never going to, you know, you're never going to eliminate suffering. You may transcend it. So I'm just curious how these Buddhist practices um, have, and this could not just be for Liz. This could be for all of us. Uh, I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Let's not. Liz. Yeah. Liz is all about Liz's suffering tonight. Uh, but how these practices helped you all transcend the suffering, move you past. Um, maybe we could talk the difference between between pain and suffering. Those are two different things. Um, and, and and maybe this is all new to you. But I'm just curious, even within some of our Christian backgrounds and faiths, if there's some overlap as well. Um, so one thing from my Christian background that became different, I came from a tradition that um, seeks after perfection in life and life experience. And one of the things that I kind of came to terms with as I've moved past that is that we also need to lament the things that we cannot change around us. So the confession in the Lutheran Church um, that I, I sin and I, it is possible to sin in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we've left undone. Like that concept has been really meaningful to me because I can't fix all of the things that I want to. Like I'm limited. I can only do so much. And so then if I can't impact those things and lamenting them is an important part of processing through the suffering that's going on around me. And not necessarily owning them as my sin, but just recognizing that we're living in a situation where everything is not perfect. And ignoring sin and the reality of sin is not a way to deal with sin um, in whatever tradition we come with. We, I don't think that we can expect, I don't think it's healthy to expect that we can get beyond that in this life, I mean, maybe when we're really, really old, but very few people are going to ever achieve that when they're young. And so we have to acknowledge suffering and what it is and that it's real. Um, and, and that's been a big transition for me to like learn to live in that reality. I mean, people talk about, like, I was just reading this great article on marriage, let's say, or, or close relationships, which is just a tiny piece of the, of the pie here. But I think this idea of, like, you know, there is, there is a perfect relationship out there for you. And when you find it, you're going to feel blissed out and you're going to uh, feel comfortable and there won't be conflict and there won't be trouble is, um, is, a, is a harmful concept because it's just a concept. It's a construct that we make up in our mind. And, um, and the truth is that it's like, okay, if, if someone falls short from that, oh, well, they must not be, they're not good enough. I'm not good enough. There's blame. There's all this stuff. And instead of just saying it's complicated, and, and good things happen and bad things happen and you have to learn to, you know, treat people ethically and treat people well inside of their mistakes. You know, I think the big shift for me from there's pain and there's suffering and learning how to express pain and deal with change and deal with grief and deal with joy without suffering because of it. But I think that actually a huge shift for me is this idea that like 
people are like whole and precious exactly the way they are. And that, yes, people do bad things, but most of us, most of the time are just being unskillful. And if I can recognize my pain and my unskillfulness, I can have a lot more compassion for yours because I see it in myself and I know what it's like. And it's like, oh, I messed up. I didn't mean to. I was angry. I was hurt. I was confused, you know? And so I go, oh, that person just did something that was kind of rude. Well, I bet they're hurt. I bet they're angry. I bet they're confused. Like, I know what that's like. I think that idea of interconnectedness and um, wholeness has, has given me a lot of relief and a lot of <laughs> release from suffering. I'm not bad. I'm not broken. You know, this, these big, ugly concepts we carry around with us. So, Yeah, I wonder how much, like, um, the Christian kind of... It almost feels like there's been this renewal um, in Christianity with, like, doing... Having these contemplative retreats and going out and doing meditation and how meditating on the scriptures and all of this stuff has become something that I... I don't know. Maybe it's not new. Maybe I just... I'm just learning about it or something, but it seems like it's something that has come about at least in the last like century that I wonder if it was influenced with, um, American Buddhism coming in and becoming a thing kind of, that was the Christian answer, which was implementing a lot of ideas, um, of mindfulness and of meditation and of lamentations and doing things like that. Um, it seems like there's some kind of connect there that, I don't know. Now I want to look it up. (laughs) Well, definitely. I think we see that in Richard Rohr who has adopted some yes. kind of Buddhist practices into his mysticism. Um, and so there's definitely overlap there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of Christians fail to realize that within the Catholic church, I think uh, in the sixties, potentially I'd have to double check my dates, but um, there was this, I, I don't even know why they wanted to do this, but the Catholic church, at least with certain uh, individuals, they wanted to have interreligious dialogue with, Buddhism. So you have guys like um, Brother David Steinelross, who's a Benedictine monk, uh, Thomas Merton, who's classic, and uh, guys like Thomas Keating. They're all kind of these monks that are part of these orders that are kind of like offshoots of the Catholic Church in their own way, heretical, which I think is funny. And um, they, guys like Brother David Steinelross, he's totally Buddhist. And he wouldn't say so, but I mean, he, when he had his interreligious dialogue with Zen Buddhism, he practiced Zen. Like he talks about spending time with Buddhists in a barn and meditating from sun up to sundown, just sitting there for multiple hours at a time. And he did that for a long time. So it makes you wonder, like, you know, why not call himself a Buddhist? But I think um, that has had a lot of influence in Christianity. And I know Thomas Merton is a huge influence, even among evangelicals and the way I grew up. I wonder if there is connections between, like, the Christian mystics. Because of the way that, like, like you were talking about um, meditating all day, it made me think of Brother Lawrence, who was around in, like, the 17th century or something. And he talks about how he literally prayed, like, 24-7. Like, every time he was awake, he was praying in some kind of contemplative like meditative state and i see a lot of similarities between that you know trying to like transcend and those kinds of ideas yeah i I think i guess what i was trying to get to is that perhaps it was buddhism but it was not just buddhism by itself but it was the dialogue that kind of sparked something within each tradition um 
and for specifically Christianity, it it was like a rediscovery of these ancient practices, you know, centering par- prayer, Lectio Divina, mm-hmm. you know, labyrinths and uh, what is it, Taizé and all this other yeah. stuff. Yeah. And even further back with that, too, within, I mean, as Jesus, who is a Jewish rabbi, and I know that we have to say that often to ourselves to remind ourselves that he was Jewish. Uh, but there's a huge tradition within Judaism which starts with memorizing scripture, and so that becomes a meditative practice as well. So I'm curious, you know, Liz, you would know this. What what's the meditative practice of reading scripture, reciting scripture? Um, is that is that a part of the meditative process that transcends suffering? So Buddhism is really complicated. There are definitely um, denominations of Buddhism that you that chant mantras, and sometimes the idea is you don't even have to know what they mean. They're in a ecclesiastical ancient Japanese or something that's not really recognizable to anyone of the the present age. You know, it'd be like reading Latin if you didn't speak Latin and. You know, yes, mantras are a huge part of some parts of of Buddhism for sure. Um, Contemplating scripture, you know, I think this is an interesting thing, and I I think this is something that makes American Buddhism really unique. I think that probably, I don't know for sure, but I think that in Asia, the heavy-duty scriptural study and um, interpretation is done by people who have taken a lifelong vow to be monks. Um, chastity, poverty, the whole bit. Um, the lay person probably doesn't engage in as much of it. But I would say that I, a lot of American Buddhists um, become Buddhists through books. They actually read it themselves or they read someone's interpretation of the scriptures. And, uh, and from that, they discern for themselves the spiritual practice within Buddhism. And so that's like a very like American Protestant ethos infiltrating its way into Buddhism where you get the lay person. And these, this is not in the traditional communities. This is in new converts, people like me. I think that's not unusual. So I have a question for you all, which is... Um, I'm just going to I'm going to do a little do a little challenge um, to my Christian friends, which is that um, I agree there's a lot of parallels between (laughs) Christianity and Buddhism. But how is it possible and what is it like for you to start to think or answer ethical questions away from an idea of who is God and who is not God, who is the Christ and who is not the Christ, which are the central tenets of Judeo-Christian belief? And instead saying, we're not even talking about God here. We're talking about, does this create more suffering? Does this create less suffering? It's a mind shift. So talking about meditation, not to connect with God necessarily, but to still the mind in order to create less suffering. Does that challenge you guys to have to think that way? Well, I think one place that it challenges is just... um very much the discover the discussion around atonement and what hap- why did Christ go to the cross and why did he have to suffer so that we might not suffer in the same ways or might be delivered so i think i think that suffering piece is actually really complicated inside of christianity because there there's huge discussions in theology about what did that mean why did god do it how did that transaction take place? Uh, what was God's purpose for it? Um, you know, did God have to kill his son? You know, that's rough. Like, did Jesus have to suffer? 
this horrible death to free us. Um, and then I think you have some theologians now that um, kind of shy away from the the need for that, that, that it was just more of a cultural expression, um, but it was what was present at the time. And I'm not a huge expert on atonement, so I may get this wrong. But, but I think so that, that suffering piece is very much a part of the Christian narrative, especially in some denominations. And so it's, it's hard. I don't know quite what to do with that. Um, because there is a narrative inside Christianity that, that you, you suffer as Christ suffered. Like that's almost a goal. Like you should suffer as much as Christ suffered for you on the cross and be thankful for that suffering. That suffering is good. And, And that's often, Oh boy, this is going to get me in trouble. I mean, that's often a a band-aid narrative that we put on people that are poor or sick or um, can never get their life to go in the right direction, like people that are perpetually stuck. Um, It's because there's sin in their life. There's suffering that's kind of built into them that's not fixable. Um, And that they should then, you know, then we turn it around and try to make this a good thing. They should then be joyful in their suffering because Christ was joyful in his suffering. And so it's just, for me, I I think that is really complicated. I don't really know what to do with that. Versus a message of liberation from suffering through spiritual practice. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you the question to help clarify. So are are you simply asking us in the bottom line would, for me at least would be, and we've had conversations about this, that, so the God, the God being. So are we talking about God being, God force? Are the are we getting hung up on what, who is God, and what is God? I mean, so are you asking us to drop the God? Yes, that's your, that's what you're asking us. Okay, she's nodding her head. Everybody, who's yeah, yes. What do you guys think? I think for me, so I haven't had a lot of experience because I've grown up in the Christian world. But um, like for example, my sister teaches first grade. And she teaches her kids this kind of exercise that I think is, you would probably think is Buddhist, and it's mindfulness, where if they're upset, like if somebody took their spot in line or something, instead of getting angry and pushing or getting angry and telling, they will think to themselves, I feel upset. I feel angry. I am angry because this person cut in line. And they talk They talk to themselves, and that's kind of with mindfulness it's be it's being aware of the thing that is upsetting you the emotions that you're feeling and you acknowledge them but you don't let them take over you and i think that that can be the truth like the truth with um do i could see how that can work with um facing your suffering and knowing that it's there but then not letting it affect you to the deeper levels within you um in your heart and in your life and that you get to make choices if if you don't get ruled by your anger, you get to choose how you respond to that person that cut in line. Right, yeah. And And I really like that a lot. I think it's a very cool exercise, and it's something that I try to do sometimes to, you know, be aware of myself and be aware of your body. I think that's something that Christianity doesn't do well. Christianity, at least in the evangelical world I grew up in, like, um, like Janelle was saying earlier, it's a lot about how you, like, feel And it's also about you have to be happy because Jesus did all the hard stuff. And so now life is good. But that's not the truth. And so I think that there and there are a lot of Christian traditions that and a lot of ideas and different things that where we do kind of face our suffering. But it is hard for us Christians to think of that outside because we like to think 
that God is everywhere. And so it's hard to imagine God not being even with us when we're suffering. So could you clarify your question again? Because you're, you're, you're wanting to know if I as a Christian can do Buddhist practices without this God concept? Or I guess... What is it like to think, what is it like as a Christian to think about taking strong, ethical, spiritual action, not based on a sense of being closer or further away from the divine, and just further or closer away from suffering as a central tenet? So for me personally right now, it's not that far-fetched just because where I am in my journey um, I don't see it as much of a, of it as a dichotomy. Um, I think it's, you're going to like as this. A, as any good Buddhist it's would say, it's not a dichotomy. dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interrelated, um, relationship, um, this concept of shalom, which is a sense of wholeness and, uh, completeness, um, for all living things, not just humans. That, that all can be found within the Judeo-Christian tradition. But I've actually, so again, personally, I've, my New Year's resolution, I don't, I've never said this and I didn't think I was going to say it publicly, but whatever. My New Year's resolution was to meditate every day. And I've been doing that. And I don't think about God, like, directly. I try to actually practice as a Buddhist or somebody who's wanting to do this mindfulness thing would, would practice. I think it's been really helpful and I, I think there's a lot of practices that can help us become better Christians. And you're probably not looking for that answer, but I, I just want to throw that out there. Like, I like the idea of creating space within myself and kind of knowing the causes and conditions of different emotions that might rise up while you're practicing. Dependent and, arising, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the idea that there's so much that we can't control. But we can control, so we can't c- control the stimulus, but we can control our reaction to these, to these things, right? Somebody cuts you off, you have this power, if you will, to either react and flip somebody off, which was my natural reaction. So kind of creating that space between the stimulus and the reaction. Again, I don't know if I'm really answering your question. I think it is possible you're you're trying to yeah, well yeah i mean and it's it's interesting <laughs> i'm trying to understand your question i keep forgetting what no it's okay and i think it's the idea too of how, is it strange or interesting to think of a concept like this taking it from just like so it's becoming really familiar to us to take a breath to take the space to take the meditation and these are becoming really normal concepts for us. I think it's really interesting that there's like a 2,500 year old religion with multiple denominations built up around this gap. Cause it's, it's really that gap that you're talking about, which is holy. And in that gap is where everything is possible. And that's where the Buddha found himself when he was enlightened. And so it's like worshiping that gap between stimulus and reaction and ethical reaction. I would say in a way that this is a semantic language even. I mean, in our, in our group last week at the pub, we were at the same table together. And I asked you about the supernatural element of Buddhism. And you would say, just like Christians, there is um, an idolatry there. You would, you would call it an idolatry. You know, the, there's, there's a divine. They wouldn't call it a divine, but it's really similar in a lot of ways. And so humans, 
It depends on the strand of Buddhism. You have yeah. a pure land, Amida Buddha type. It's I, these conversations are so tough because even when we're talking about Christianity, which Christianity exactly, and with Buddhism, which Buddhism? Yeah, I, yeah. So and, and that that is hard because I mean, so when we talk about God, and when you asked us the question about God, you have one, two, three, four, five. There's five Christians here, and we probably all would disagree on how we would define God Absolutely. and the atonement. And then you're, you're the one Buddhist, and can you speak for all the Buddhists of the world? No, no. Uh, but so, I mean, specifically, I, I, to follow up, can I, I'm just going to piggyback on your question. So, and Dan, you answered some of this, too. I'd love to hear what Kyle has to say as well as somebody who does theology literally from the ground up in this idea of God in the ground. Um, do you need Do you need God? Do you not need God? Is God in it? Is and what is God for Kyle? I, I'm putting you on the spot, but I know you have great stuff to say because of your liberation tendencies. Do you need God to to what? Well, we ta- th- we initially talked about suffering, but we're we're beyond suffering now. We're talking about just enlightenment, awakening, liberation. If if the Christ and the Buddha both have the same goal, which is to liberate, and you use the word shalom, see I. There is a difference, though, but I'll let Kyle talk. Okay. Oh, gosh. Um, I, I think for me, like, when, when thinking about God or defining God, for me personally, I'm pretty influenced by death of God theology, um, which kind of has this dialectical mode of um, in the absence of God is where you find God. Um, and so for me the idea of practicing an ethic, uh, kind of like what you were asking earlier, in which you do it from the ground up rather than, from, rather than starting from how does this allow me to get closer to God or where is God at and how do I start from there? To me, that's a fundamentally Christian thing. For, for me personally, that's the way I, I approach Christianity is God isn't found... In, in the sky, God is found within us. God is found within our neighbor. Um, and so when we practice an ethic of um, embracing suffering so we might overcome it, um, for me, that, that's where God is found. And so that, that's why it's so hard for me. It's because like it, when, when you ask me to um, get rid of God and do an ethic um, that is inherently involving our neighbors, um, involving... Um, an awareness of our surroundings, um, to me, that's that's where I find God the most. Um, and so that I found it actually really challenging to think about um, this idea of an absence of God in which God is not found. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense because it, because it seems really backwards. Um, but yeah. No, I, and I, I know I kind of set you up for that because I knew that's what you would say. Dan wants to piggyback off that as well, but I think there's a lot there that so, several of us pro- would probably resonate with, and I think that Liz, as a non-deistic person, would probably resonate as well. But I don't want to put words into her mouth. Yeah, I just wanted to... I think I finally kind of understood your question, and there was an assumption that the ethics that I... When I act ethically, it is to be closer to God. And that may be true at a like subconscious level, but I like to think that consciously I do it because um, I care about people. And then what my faith does is in that encounter or in that work, the faith part, which, which I 
I think of as trust, I trust that that somehow has to do with God. That relationship and that caring and loving act. So, yes, I could still do it without God. So, what you guys are saying... Consciously, without God. (laughs) It's so weird. What you guys are saying is... I I should just go back to being a Christian. I found everything I could have wanted in Christianity if I had just looked a little harder. Is that true? No, I would never tell you what to do. No, 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 no. I wasn't saying you guys are telling me to do anything. But someone actually posited that. Well, you know, Christianity has a lot of... Why not just be a Christian? You were raised a Christian. And actually, the Dalai Lama, I think was the Dalai Lama, said, you know, if Buddhism, one of the best things that Buddhism could possibly do for people in the Western world is bring them back to their roots and their root tradition, whether that's Christianity or Judaism. Sometimes I think about that. Like, if if I could have just found liberation theology or ground-up theology or process theology... And that's, if, if I'm honest with myself, that's one of the reasons I'm still a Christian. And I'm, I'm very influenced by the Dalai Lama. He says, you know, don't use Buddhism to become a Buddhist. Use it to become a better whatever you already are, right? And I live in this Christian context. It's semi-Christian. But, you know, I was raised this way. There's, there's a lot of things that I can't change. And I'm still drawn. I'm haunted by Jesus, you know. And I could purge that out and, or, you know, repress it for the rest of my life where I can just, okay, this is the cards that I've been dealt. I'm going to do the best that I can with it. But if you identify as a Buddhist, maybe you can just become, you can use Christianity to become a better Buddhist, as some Christians use Buddhism to become better Christians. You know, I actually did that. I was in a Christian missional community for two years learning about how to uh, be a missional community spreading the Gospels of Christ. And um, I was an atheist. And in that process is when I finally discovered that I was going to be a Buddhist. So you've already done it. Because I figured if, if, <laughs> if I was really committed to Buddhism, it, I would use this as an opportunity to really get to know people that I'm interconnected with and what is their expression of faith and what is it like being with them when they're praying and they're having really intimate moments with their experience of the divine. And, you know, I felt like... To be a good Buddhist meant being able to be in those spaces in a respectful, integrated, interconnected kind of way. Yeah, and I think it was by the end of that that I was like, yep, yep, I'm a Buddhist. It, it doesn't help that I, I don't believe in, in God. <laughs> That's probably the split for me. I mean, it's I do know Christians who do not necessarily believe in the historical Jesus or who necessarily believe in God. But maybe for me, that's the split. I think that... I am never going to be a pastor after I say this out loud. Um, Janelle, you're always a pastor. (laughs) Um, I think that if your heart and life resonates with Buddhism, then that's where you need to be. And I hope that through the interaction with the Christians around you, we show you a Christ that would be happy to have you as part of our family. Um, and to be able to do that with open hands that welcome you to the table with us, whether you want to sit next to Jesus or not. Um, Because I think that's what it means to be a Christian, is that we come and welcome everyone as they are and love people and care about them and, and bring goodness into the world. 
And I would say a lot of this goes back to our conversation we had with Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav, yeah. who, as a Jewish rabbi who does not speak for all Jews, because just like you don't speak for all Buddhists, and he had said, I'm not interested in converting people to Judaism, and but if these Jewish practices, and he specifically talked about awe and wonder and mysticism, and he was, you know, he's, he's a big nature guy, hikes out at Red Rocks all the time, great pictures if you follow him on Facebook. And he's like, if you find the connection of the divine or whatever you want to call the divine, this experience out there, he's like, I'm not interested in what you call that or what religions formed around it. It's more of, um, again, the connection that leads you to a certain way of life. And so then if there are 72 names for God in the Jewish world and then the Hindus, which is where Buddhism came from, there's how many different deities, manifestations, and then in Christianity, we would say three in one. I don't know. Uh, but what is, what, is there a universal in a particular context? I know that I use two different things there, universals and particulars. But is there a universal that we could say within Judaism, Christianity, and Buddha, Buddhism that we could say there's a, there's a shared value? And, and you know, I think, I think you, you nailed it. But I think that we're going to – you hesitated because there are Christians out there who are saying that, no, like, you can't be a pastor if you say that. And I would say, wait, aren't pastors supposed to like shepherd flocks? And if a flock is, uh, they're not all the same. This cat over here in the corner is different from the other cat, but you're going to love all the cats in the house. Unless you're Ryan, you don't love any cats. But I'm trying to you be more Jesus you. and Zen and love cats. <laughs> We're, yeah, we should. We should love all people. But, um, but then that sounds so bumper sticker, cliche, coexist. And then I become a realist and I go, that doesn't exist in our world. So there are particulars, but I wonder if there are universals within the particulars. What I like to see is in these kinds of conversations is just that the possibility of a mutual transformation, right? There's so much that I've learned from Buddhism that I wouldn't have gotten from any kind of um, expression of the, of the Christian faith. Not that I've exhausted all my options here. There's so many, but... yeah. You know, we've got to we've got to rec- recognize that. Yes, there are shared values, but at the same time, there are differences. There are differences, yeah. and there's different gates you walk through. Yeah, I, I like to think of uh, the church is actually a beautiful example of this is a stained glass window, right? I, I grew up in in an evangelical uh, context where you know the the walls were painted all the same color, and that's the kind of faith yep. that I grew up with. Yep. Whereas. In the Catholic Church, Catholic, which means universal, you have these beautiful stained glass windows. And every time I see those things, I think these are the fragments of our humanity. Uh, together, you know, there's, there's different shapes, different sizes, different, different ages and different tints and just, just this beauty. Whereas, you know, you can, you can say, oh, it's all the same and here's a painted wall. It's just not as beautiful. Yeah, I think like whatever avenue you end up going um in spirituality as people find something that is life-giving and that draws them to become um better people and draws them to co-create with the rest of the world i think maybe i mean because there's a lot of pain that people come out of um, when they come out of christianity and it's very understandable you know that that somebody would never want to step into a church again and that's not always true and some people they decide to remain in this in christianity because something about it draws them in i think that there may be the universalness maybe it's not certain things like 
you know, like, oh, this, like, there's, it's a big mountain, and we're all taking our different points to the top, but maybe it's not about that, maybe the universalness of what we do, why we seek religion and spirituality and all of that, is that we are searching for something that gives us purpose, and something that lessens our suffering, and something that gives us life, and for some of us, we see that in um, the life and teachings and death of Jesus and resurrection, and some of us see it in Buddhism, some of us see it in Islam, and we find it in these different ways, um, but it helps us make sense of the world, I think. I think that's maybe the point of religion in that we all take it in our own direction, and some of us um, some of us mix it up and make have a little bit of everything, and I think that's okay, too. A very American thing to say. A yeah, very yeah. American I, thing to say. I can't help it. I'm Bald American. eagles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> um. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think, um, I think it's so much of spirituality or religion is this experience that we all have where in some moments in our lives we feel like the possibilities of our actions or our inner goodness is bigger than we are like we are capable of something great if we just knew what that was and I I think that um I think that's a huge part of what people find in religion is is all of a sudden that sense that sense of being greater and getting outside of oneself one's limited or one's limited concepts into something that is confusing and bewildering and awe-inspiring I think that happens to a lot of people from time to time and it's um the idea that it can be made into a practice and that somehow we can make the world a better place through it is is you know an aspiration for people that have felt those things I have a question for you for me what do you think Christians can learn from Buddhists you know because you know we've talked about how American culture is being influenced greatly through different avenues, through art and through um, psychology, whether it's pop psychology or or through academia or whatever. When I look at the kind of Christianity that is kind of at the forefront of American culture, it looks like there's a lot to learn. I mean, I think at the risk of repeating myself, I think it's a big paradigm shift to think of people as fundamentally whole with basic goodness and basic wisdom and that the world for what it is is whole and that a suffering world and a enlightened world are actually just two sides of the same coin is a big deal and I think that a lot can be implied from that fundamental shift and just personally I mean I think that kind of like what Piper was talking about, what you were talking about, like this cultivating the capacity of the mind to see and experience its own reality without identifying with it, without being driven by it, where there's that gap between stimulus and action. So a non-judgmental kind of view of reality. Yeah, I don't think American Christians are all that good at that. And... I think that's if it. only Jesus said something about it. <laughs> Just maybe, and it's a very pragmatic thing because it's that's a very like nitty gritty. You sit down every day and you meditate, and it's actually like a skill. It's actually like a, a, a life skill that Buddhism teaches, and that 
um, and to, uh, yeah, and it's interesting that that gets elevated to a sense of, you know, uh, a religious status, considering how, like, normal and boring and kind of hard it is to do. But I think that, for me, that has changed my world enormously, and it, is, it has allowed me to be an ethical person, like, that ability. And I'm not saying it's like, oh, I'm, I'm so great that I cultivated this thing. It was like somebody figured it out 2,500 years ago, and I, tr I have faith that if I practice it, I will gain the skills and the discernment to be a better person to serve everybody else. Like, and so it's so pragmatic, and yet I have so much faith in it, and it brings me so much nourishment spiritually. And at the risk of draw maybe drawing too many parallels that may or may not exist. Wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of those Buddhist practices that, like, creating that space allows me to go back to uh, Christian practices and recognize that, you know, sitting down, again, this is me from my Christian point of view looking at some of the Buddhist practices, sitting down and doing, quote, nothing um, is Satan's going to get you. Yeah. Satan's going to get me, but I, I'm taking care of myself. And then when I go back to Jesus's words, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And it's almost as if you can't love your neighbor unless you love yourself. Bada bing, bada boom. There's, there's gotta be this, um, this inner nourishment. you you can't produce that fruit until you're nourished yourself and have grown into some kind of tree. Well, I think we'll probably have multiple Buddhist topics, not just American Buddha, uh, but uh, I, since we only have a little bit of time left, I'm curious, since these four over here are not converts to the way of the Birdman, oh. we will be having a Birdman showing soon, and so should you out there in the other parts of the world. Uh, tell us more about the in five minutes, ten minutes we have left, about Birdman, and yes, go, go Buddha, go. Well, Ryan, you've seen the movie. What do you think? Oh, oh I knew she would do this. Okay. Uh, well, the, yeah, the, the main character, Michael Keaton, redeemed his career, by the way, just on, uh, on, the, on the surface, which is funny because speaking of a guy who's on the surface, here's an actor who um, was trying to play this old character who was the Birdman, like Superman, and he's trying to take himself seriously on this Broadway show, uh, but he has complicated relationships with his wife and his girlfriend, and his daughter. And so the, the cinematography alone is worth watching the movie. If you've never seen it for that alone, uh, to have one single shot go through the entire movie is phenomenal. Wait, before, before you go any further, is yeah. this going to be a spoiler alert for any of the listeners? Yes. Okay. So, spoiler so alert. Just a heads up. <laughs> we're going to be, we're going to be ruined down. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as Liz has outlined in the notes too, what you have is a, a man at the end of this film, which is all based in a theater in a, in a studio in New York. Um, after he, uh, he really deals with his ego and his pride and he's not the man that he once was, but the man that he once was the bird man is always haunting him literally in these, um, these dreamlike reality <laughs> stages. And then, so he, he ends the film after having these really messy relationships with all these people in his life that should matter, who are trying to bring him back, not to his old Birdman self, but a new self that was always there. And then he takes a plummet down into the pavement smashes his nose and then uh yeah liz liz can tell you the rest because there no I, i'm curious there's because it, it's like when you meet the buddha if you meet him you you kill the buddha so i'm curious there's a lot of good stuff there there's a lot of good stuff death to self and and this idea that 
you know, so I just learned today that there, is, there have been longitudinal studies done of people, of humans, where they were giving them a personality test when they were 14 years old, and then they gave them a personality test when they were 70 years old, and none of them had the same personality profile whatsoever that they did. We are not static. Ourselves are not static. The Buddha says there's no self, there's no not self. And as like, it's like we all deal with this. We are all walking around with this concept, this rigid shell of a concept of this is who I am, this is what it means to be a woman, this is what it means to be a Buddhist. And, if, and it's so easy to get caught up in our own inner dialogues and our own, our own fantasies and our own reminiscences. And it literally does. It's like this block between you, who you are, in the, sitting in this chair in my living room, and who are the actual people around you who are changing every single second and becoming somebody new all the time. Yeah. And that very much flies into the face of our American individualism. Yes. That it defines, I think, is something that all of you, the last question was, what makes this American Buddhism? And one of the things that, that religions have to deal with when they come to America is the confrontation with capitalism and achievement and blessing and individualism. Mm, and that's exactly it, that we are living in this individual world that is basically fueled by materialism and capitalism and making money and all those things that we just talked about, about loving others and caring for others and the poor and the, the outcasts, those don't have any value in our culture in America for many people. And so the confrontation is right there. How, do, how does Buddhism function in a culture that's so opposed to letting go of the self, yeah. which is everything. Yeah, and Michael Keaton's character was obsessed with his former material success, and he sheds his material success, and then he tries to gain spiritual materialism by meditating and all this stuff, but it's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about his gain. He's going to gain a spiritual benefit from doing this obscure play, Raymond Carver, um, you know, he's given up his materialistic self, but he's still materialistic, and it, he doesn't wake up until it literally hits him in the face. And that's how we all are. And we can all laugh, and we can all see ourselves in, in that character, because we all need a wake-up call from time to time. And hopefully, there's still people that love us on the other side of that transformation, just like he was. Yeah. And for the Christians who are, if you're listening at all, I, I do wonder if Jesus, if he had not have died, what would he have become a bird man? So there's that. We'll talk about that on another episode. Wow. And we, we're pretty much time's up. So uh, if you like this episode, thank you, by the way. First off, Liz, this is really job, American Buddha Great with Liz, Liz Wolfert. Yes, Liz is fantastic. She's with us every week, so we're pretty blessed there. And thank you to Piper, Kyle, Janelle, and Dan. And our sound engineer in the back, Baird. Woo-woo. Go, Baird. Yeah. Yeah. So if you like the show, go on iTunes. If you give us a rating, if you like it and you share it, that's actually how we get more listeners. So if you're a listener right now and you're listening and you, you're like, hey, more people should you know, listen to the Brute Theology podcast. Share it with what a, them. What a great idea. It's called a retweet button or a reshare button. And Dan, do you have anything else to add to that? Dan is, Dan is the phenomenal editor. But no. I no. Have anything. Nothing. <laughs> no self. No. <laughs> Uh, uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. Go to the website, brewtheology.org. If you have any questions, you can email us, Janelle at brewtheology.org or Ryan at brewtheology.org. And we'd love for you to do what we're doing here in your community. So, all right, peace out. 
Cheers. Peace.